1: and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. This is Tevi Troy, your host, and each week we look at a new book in the world of public policy and discuss its meaning for our public policy sphere and our elected officials. This week we're going to be talking to Phil Herpin, the author of Democracy Denied, and he has a very long subtitle. It is How Obama is Ignoring You and Bypassing Congress to Radically Transform America and How to Stop Him. That is a Officially the longest subtitle I think we've had here on new books and public policy. Phil, as you can tell from the subtitle, is going to be a critic of the Obama administration and its use of administrative actions to pursue its policy goals. The theory is that since the 2010 election and even a little bit beforehand, the Obama administration has been using the regulatory apparatus rather than Congress to get policy wins because Congress is uh, very hard to get things through. And now with it being half Democrat and half Republican, it's not really conducive to pursuing the Obama agenda. So th- that's Phil's take on things, and we're going to get him on the line here and have a conversation with him about his book, Democracy Denied. Hello, and welcome, Phil Kirpin, to our conversation here on New Books and Public Policy.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us. We're here to talk about your book, Democracy Denied, but as always, I'd like to start out by asking you a little bit about yourself, who are you and how did you come to write this book?
0: I'm uh, Phil Kirpin. I'm the vice president for policy at Americans for Prosperity. I'm also um, a columnist at Fox News Opinion and the chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition. And uh, I've been working in sort of a free market public policy for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. I used to work at Free Enterprise Fund and Club for Growth and the Cato Institute before I came to Americans for Prosperity.
1: There are viewers who don't know what AFP is or Americans for Prosperity is. Can you tell a little bit about the organization?
0: Yeah, we're a national grassroots organization dedicated to educating, training, and mobilizing citizens to become part of the public policy process, federal, state, and local, from the perspective of limited government, lower taxes, less spending, less regulation, maximum individual freedom. Uh, we were founded in 2004, uh, and we were founded in reaction to the observation that the left has extremely well-organized, well-funded, permanent constituencies that will show up every time there's a fight over the size of government. They've got the trial lawyers, the green groups, the uh, public employee unions, the campus protest crowd, and uh, our side was always sort of playing catch-up, doing ad hoc coalitions of business groups and what have you on any given fight, but never had that permanent infrastructure of a large number of activists who care about size of government issues so we decided to be that to become that and to build that network and we're up to 1.8 million activists now nationally and we've got staff in 34 states so we've been growing very rapidly
1: now in the process of writing this book do you have carte blanche in what
0: you say or does your
1: organization kind of direct what you get to say
0: well, I, I wrote this book uh, in an in individual capacity, so it was not uh, on, on behalf of the organization where I work, and the organization didn't have any input into it, but uh, it, it largely tracks the things that I've been working on at Americans for Prosperity and the, the issues that, that uh, you know we care about as an organization.
1: All right, and so tell our audience, which I must tell you is a bipartisan audience, we've got people on the left and on the right listening, uh, what is the message of your book, or what is the... the- Core message that you're trying to get out there.
0: Well, the the principal message of the book is that we've got to demand that our elected officials, uh, particularly our our uh, members of Congress, take greater responsibility for exercising the legislative powers with which they've been entrusted, and stop attempting to delegate them away wholesale to unelected, unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats and regulators. And in particular, I deal with how in the year since the landslide 2010 election, one of the biggest landslide elections we've seen in the history of this country, uh, our current president has been able to use the sort of bureaucratic apparatus to continue pursuing all of the extreme left-wing policies that, that the American people rejected. And in my view, that should not be possible. Uh, there should be checks in place uh, that it guarantee that our elected officials are in the decision loop such that a uh, president with such an agenda would be unable to do so. And so I, I, I try to deal with some of these broader structural issues and the, the need for reform and the need for citizens to hold their elected officials accountable for what goes on in the bureaucracy uh, through the lens of, of what's gone on in the past year, kind of as a continuation of policies that the president had been pursuing through Congress, but now kind of shifted to pursue by other means.
1: Um, And you say at the beginning of the book, I thought it was very interesting, that this book is based on a chart. Uh, First of all, can you tell us what chart, how you wrote a book based on a chart, and is that chart available online so our listeners can find it?
0: Yeah, I think think this might be the first and perhaps the only book ever based on a chart. So if there's like a category somewhere for best book adapted from a chart, I think I would win it uh, by default. Uh the chart is available at obamachart.com and it's actually it's an interactive chart if you go to the obamachart.com version you can click on any of the bubbles on there for a, an explanation and uh, the ones towards the bottom link to to action items you can take to actually contact members of Congress and the the first version of this I'm actually looking at right now was a very crude version on the whiteboard in of my office which I've uh, kind of retired from active use because I didn't want to erase this chart that I first drew a couple of years ago uh, and I, I drew it during the late stages of the Obamacare fight when Scott Brown had won in Massachusetts. When, by any uh, logical, uh, normal pro- process, uh, it should have been over. That should have ended the push for, for the Obamacare legislation. But it became clear that the Democrats would contrive to get around that election. And it became increasingly clear to me that the president, having largely spent all his political capital, uh, their ambitions. The ambitions of this administration and their allies in Congress would shift out of Congress and pushing additional landmark legislation. Though They had enough follow through to get Dodd-Frank through, but it seemed to me that they would focus on moving their objectives by other means in the agencies instead. And so I drew this chart to kind of show how the administration was going around the normal and legitimate process of enacting policies to get what they wanted by other means, and uh, it's gone through a couple of revisions. The the current version is the one that's on the back cover of the book, and it's also uh, on the website, and it's uh, been updated to reflect uh, the two pieces of landmark legislation that did pass, Obamacare and Dodd-Frank, which I think greatly increased the opportunity for mischief uh, by regulators and bureaucrats by giving them thousands of pages of additional mandates uh, that will create hundreds and hundreds of rulemaking.
1: You know, I have a um, advanced, uncorrected proof, so my, my version of the book does not have the chart on the back, but uh, I am curious to see that version as well. Uh, you talk about uh, legitimate use of power, illegitimate use of power. Uh, it, it's perfectly normal, it seems to me, for an administration, if they are stymied in Congress, to go through the administrative apparatus. Now, I worked in the Bush administration, and after the 2006 election, We had a meeting in the chief of staff's office where they said, well, we're not going to be able to get as much as we wanted through Congress, so we'll have to do it through the regulatory process, whatever we can do, obviously, legally and appropriately. Uh, So so what's wrong with it, or what is different about what the Obama administration is doing or approaching this issue?
0: I think think there are a number of differences between previous administrations and this one uh, that I'll get to in a moment. But I I would also point out that I think this has been a long-running problem, and uh, I think that in in many respects the criticisms from the left on the use of executive power in the bush administration had some merit now a lot of them were in the national security realm where i'm not an expert at all and don't pretend to be uh... but clearly i i think if we get to the point where the president essentially can rule by dictate for four years and we have something like a four year elected dictator uh, we've lost our constitutional form of government and i think that would be a real tragedy and so, i think we need to guard against uh, moves towards you know unlimited or nearly unlimited presidential power Now, that that said, I think this has been a long-running trend where Congress delegates more and more power to the executive branch and to the bureaucracy because they find it convenient to avoid political responsibility for the actual concrete actions that affect people's lives and businesses and so forth. And so they like to pass these broad, vague bills and give the real decision-making power over to bureaucrats. And as I mentioned, I think Dodd-Frank and Obamacare were both a major confirmation of that pattern, and and perhaps, I hope... Uh, the apex of that, and I hope we'll be able to, to turn it back. Uh, so this is not new with this administration. This has been a long-running trend, and Congress, of course, has been complicit in giving away so much of its power by passing these broad, vague statutes. And I think you know we've had several points of departure, kind of starting with the Wilson administration, the original idea for administrative agencies through the Administrative Procedures Act in the 40s and the uh, landmark environmental laws in the 70s, which have become sort of a government unto themselves, controlled by judges and lawyers and so forth. But I think uh, what's changed, the the character of uh, executive and regulatory power has changed somewhat in the Obama administration in that uh, they're now openly... Going around the wishes of Congress and the American people to do some things that I think are clearly legislative in nature. And so, for instance, cap and trade, which is the subject of chapter two in the book, was the subject of a major national debate that everyone agreed uh, ought to be settled legislatively. And uh, the Obama administration, the day after the election, said, oh, that was only one way to skin the cat. Uh, We've got other means to that end. And in fact, in their budget request for the EPA, they wrote in the exact same emissions abatement schedule that was never passed into law. And the EPA's basically had as their marching orders figuring out a way to um, meet that goal uh, that never was enacted into law. And we've seen similar things in other areas. We've also seen a lot of actions that were unlawful. And uh, I say that um, because they've been found unlawful in courts of law. And so, for instance, uh, the FCC has decided that they're going to regulate the Internet in the name of net neutrality, uh, despite the fact that this only had 27 co-sponsors in the House. Uh, Ninety-five candidates campaigned on it last year, all 95 lost. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals had already pretty stingingly ruled that they have no jurisdiction to do so. And I believe they'll they'll strike down this latest order again. Verizon is challenging them. Uh, but nonetheless, they basically said we don't care what the court has said. Uh, we'll implement these rules anyway. And they thought they could get acquiescence from every industry player so that they wouldn't be challenged in court. They were actually wrong. And so I think that will fall. But uh, nonetheless, every single Democrat in the US Senate voted not to overturn that order, even though I think it was clearly unlawful. We also had, and this is a focus of chapter seven in the book, The spectacle of the unlawful moratorium on deep water drilling in the Gulf, which was based on a doctored report. Uh, Carol Browner, the White House climate czar, doctored a report of an expert task force that specifically did not recommend a blanket moratorium. To recommend a blanket moratorium, they imposed one. They were held in contempt by Judge Judge Martin Feldman. Um, Secretary Salazar said he did not care, that he would not lift the moratorium until he wanted to, uh, disregarded that court order. Uh, that's why he was held in contempt for disregarding the initial court order. Eventually they officially lifted the moratorium, but they've continued it by other means, uh, by permitting slowdowns and so forth. And so I think that the um, this administration has been willing to cross that line that you mentioned of pursuing objectives within lawful mechanisms. I think they've crossed over uh, in several respects into unlawful mechanisms and threatened to have a, a pretty near complete breakdown in the rule of law. And I, I actually think the, Tone for that was set very early in the administration with the way the Chrysler bankruptcy was handled, where they basically said senior secured creditors will accept pennies on the dollar, and the unions will be made whole. And uh, you know, if you don't like it, if you want to challenge us, we'll destroy you. And so they they basically frightened uh, the bondholders from doing anything, with the exception of the Indiana pension fund, which did sue, but uh, there was there was it was found that there was no remedy available to them. And so I I think it's been in many respects a lawless administration in the pursuit of failed legislative objectives by other means.
1: Well, there's a lot in there and a lot to unpack. Uh, let me start. Uh, you mentioned the Obama health care law. Uh, you said it's uh, vague and letting the bureaucrats decide everything, but it is 2,700 pages long. So, I mean, Congress did say a lot of things. Now, I'm a critic of the Obama Healthcare law, and I've written that there are a lot of problems with it, but uh, lack of Congress telling the administration what to do may not be one of its problems.
0: Well, I would disagree with that. I mean, I think that... Um, all of its other defects aside, which are many, this was never written to be final legislation. I mean, this was essentially a draft bill that the Senate was rushing out on a Christmas Eve to go into negotiations with the House on and to, to finalize either through a conference committee or ping pong or what have you. But, I mean, this was never intended to be enacted into the US code which is why there's a whole title there that makes changes to the bill itself there are a lot of ambiguities contradictions and so on in order to get around Scott Brown's election in Massachusetts a draft bill was inserted into the US code now they were able to make some changes through the reconciliation bill but of course uh, under Senate rules and what could actually be done in a reconciliation bill and so we've had uh, the spectacle of glitch after glitch being discovered and attempts to quote correct unquote those glitches uh, by guidance and rulemaking and what have you, I mean the first one was the letter that Sibelius sent uh just days after the bill passed, saying, even though the way this is drafted, it doesn't eliminate pre existing condition exclusions for children, we're going to uh demand that you act as if it does, and she basically wrote a letter to the insurance company saying, "Come on, guys, you know that uh this is what we meant, so you better do it and amazingly, you know they agreed to that, probably because that was a pretty popular provision, but then you know I think the the, the way the grandfather rule was written. Uh, was contrary to at least all of the, way the all of the political marketing of the law, if not to the actual text of the law, because there were no protections for people to keep their existing plans. And uh, now we've discovered that the way the law was written, there are no subsidies available inside of a federal exchange. And uh, now, of course, the IRS is insisting otherwise, despite what the law pretty clearly says, and those are just a few examples of, I, I think, sort of um, abuse of regulatory power to try to get away with this passing an unfinished draft law uh, into the U.S. code as is. But then there are they're much broader questions of expansion of regulatory power here. Uh, the Congressional Research Service has said that the number of new boards, commissions, agencies, et cetera, under the Obama health care law is unknowable. They said they can't even count them. Uh, they're open-ended rulemaking authority under many of these provisions, so we'll be dealing with, you know, potentially infinite number of rules going forward and the really key provisions uh, the ones that are going to be the most contested in my view uh, were not specified by Congress so for, for instance the definition of an essential health benefit is being left up to the bureaucrats well that's going to define what health insurance coverage pretty much everyone in this country has or everyone who's in the exchanges at least and uh, you know there are a lot of other ways in which I, I think they, they pass the buck to regulators and bureaucrats. And, you know, you point out that there were thousands of pages there. There were, that's true. But many of those thousands of pages were open-ended grants of uh, authority to bureaucrats. Uh, Another crucial example is the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which is specifically insulated from congressional oversight because there's a supermajority requirement for Congress to overturn any of the recommendations coming out of IPAB. I I think there are real constitutional questions about that structure.
1: Yeah, well, we all uh, know that committees aren't as effective as some people uh, thought they might be. Uh, as what we saw this week. Um, you also mentioned the um, uh, energy policy and um, a woman named Heather Zichal or Zichal who replaced Carol Browner. And you, you make a, a joke about uh, from the Who song, "Meet the Newzar," same as the Oldzar. I mean, I think the the better Who joke about her is, "Who is she?" I mean, she, you know, she's the say she's the climate and energies are, but. Uh, she's she's pretty much an unknown. Can you tell us a little bit about her?
0: Yeah, I mean she she worked for uh, she worked for Al Gore. She worked for John Kerry. Uh, she's been she she was Carol Browner's top deputy in the White House. And you know it's interesting the way Browner left. uh... It was actually announced by John Podesta, who's not officially a member of the Obama administration. So I thought it was interesting that he was the one who announced her departure. But Browner's been at the center of so many of the swirling scandals with this administration. The uh, CAR rule, where the EPA and CARB, the California Air Resources Board, played kind of bad cop and really, really, really bad cop, and uh, strong-armed the auto industry into accepting 54.5 miles per gallon fuel economy standards, uh, despite the fact that no such thing was authorized by any law of the United States. She was at the center of that negotiation, where they said, we put nothing in writing ever, Mary Nichols told the New York Times. She was the one who doctored the, um, the report of the expert task force that that did not recommend a moratorium on deep water drilling in the Gulf. She doctored it to uh, recommend one. And we recently found out that she was the White House staffer who told Solyndra not to announce any layoffs in October of last year, but rather to wait until November 3rd. And it was interesting, one of the Solyndra emails said, no reason was given for the date of November 3rd, uh, which of course was the day after the election. And so I think uh, for, the vari- for a variety of reasons, they thought that she needed to depart the White House, although she went to the Center for American Progress, which is kind of the outside arm of the White House, being run by John Podesta, who was the transition chairman, and there's been a lot of back and forth uh, between them and the administration. So I have no doubt that she's still extremely influential, though they thought it was important to get her out of the White House before some of these things like the uh, Cylinder scandal broke. Uh, but they promoted her deputy, Heather uh, Heather uh, Zickal, I, I don't even know how to pronounce her name. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, was was her deputy in the White House uh, they did not replace Browner. Instead, they promoted uh, they promoted her, and uh, she explained that everything would continue on the same track that it was on. That there would be no change in direction of policy. But I do think that the fact that she is uh, not nearly the high profile figure that Carol Browner was indicates that there's been a big shift in kind of the the center of gravity on some of these environmental regulatory issues away from the White House where Carol Browner really was calling most of the shots into the EPA itself. And I think Lisa Jackson has considerably more stroke in this administration uh, than any of the White House staffers. And, um, you know, I think we need to focus a lot of our attention there at this point in terms of you know how they're going to move forward on all these various different rules. Well, Lisa
1: Jackson, of course, is the head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, you mentioned something that I wanted to talk to you about uh, a little more at great length, uh, which is CAP, or the Center for American Progress. Uh, John Podesta actually just left uh, the, his role as CEO of CAP, and I guess Neera Tandon, who's also an, a, an alumnus of the Obama administration and the Clinton administration, by the way, uh, is now the president and CEO there. But CAP is a recurring player on many issues. Uh, that, that you talk about in the book, not just the energy policy, but you talk about this guy named Mark Lloyd at FCC. You talk about Van Jones and his kind of attempt to radicalize government from within, even though he's kind of, uh, you, say, you say that he's moderating his rhetoric, but not his actions. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about CAP and their role and how they managed to have a hand at so many different pots in the administration's policy initiative?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the Center for American Progress is kind of uh, in the the mothership of left-wing activism. And, uh, I mean, they they do some some scholarship also. I mean, they they would like to be known for that, but they've really sort of been overtaken by uh, political activism, I think. And they have a very, very active left-wing blog called Think Progress, and they kind of send out the talking points to all the other left-wing groups on a kind of daily basis. They're sort of the... A hyper-politicized left-wing answer to the Heritage Foundation is how I think they originally pitched it to donors when they were getting it off the ground, which was around 2003, 2004. And um, most of their seed money came from Herb and Marion Sandler, the subprime kingpins who invented uh, the pick-a-pay mortgage, then uh, sold their company to WaCoVia, which uh, later sort of blew up Wachovia, so they're not the most savory of characters. There was actually a brilliant New York times send up of them that, uh, it's very hard to find online now. I think it's been taken down everywhere, but uh, they identified them in the Chiron as the worst people in the world, uh, which wasn't that much of an overstatement. The New York times and, identified them as such. Uh, the, uh, is that what I said? I meant Saturday night live. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Saturday night live. Very hard to find, uh, but they, they did a brilliant send up of them. Uh, and george Soros, and there was a third there was a third founding donor that Podesta has kept a secret to this day, and so they, they, people speculate, but no one really knows who that was uh, but they they raise uh they raise money from a variety of different interests and they channel it towards sort of policy advocacy, but with a heavy heavy political edge to it and uh they've also been sort of a staging ground for a lot of uh administration members, and there's been uh back and forth and so on and of course Podesta was one of the co-chairs of Obama's transition team. And so he hired a lot of his people from CAP right into the administration. And then he went back to CAP and he hired people back out and so forth. So they've been kind of a a staging ground and also a source for for some policy ideas and uh, for for political activism and so forth. I actually think that, you know, in in my read of things, they're less the source for – substantive policy ideas than they are the echo chamber for the messaging that the White House wants out there. I think that this administration relies more on the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities for actual substantive policy recommendations, and they rely on Center for American Progress to be kind of their political echo chamber and kind of the lead organizer of the various left-wing coalitions that have supported their different efforts. So if you want
1: to leave the administration and go to CAP, is there even an application process, or you just walk right in?
0: I think it's pretty much automatic. I mean, Van Jones was kind of the most interesting one, of course, because he left in a big cloud of scandal. I mean, it wasn't just that remarks had surfaced that uh, he had described himself as a communist and he had given up, you know, he'd given up the... uh, He'd given up the language of communism, but not the goal, so, which was how he described himself in, that, in an interview with an alternative newspaper in, uh, in Oakland as recently as 2005. Uh, but what really was sort of the last straw was that he had signed the 9-11 truth petition, and that is out of bounds pretty much for anyone in the mainstream of American politics, even on the far left. And so he kind of resigned in disgrace over that. And within the week, he was seen working at Center for American Progress coming in and out. And they said, oh, uh, they said he doesn't work here. We're not paying him. We've we've just given him an office to to park at while he sorts things out. And then a couple weeks later, they announced that, in fact, he was back there as a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. And he was back on the payroll. And, uh, you know, of course, we saw something similar. Carol Browner actually announced that John Podesta announced that she had left the administration and was returning to cap. Neither she nor the White House. Uh, made the announcement, which I found interesting. And, uh, of course, that was a, a very natural return. She had been a board member of Center for American Progress before she went into the Obama administration, and then uh, she returned there in some capacity. I don't, I don't know, probably, I think, some kind of fellow as well. Uh, but, but what was interesting to me about Van Jones is it wasn't just that he was embraced by the Center for American Progress, but that someone with really extreme views that were clearly outside of what I thought was the political mainstream not only was hired back at Center for American Progress, he was also giving a, given a teaching fellowship at Princeton University. He uh, taught a course there this past semester. Uh, the NAACP gave him an image award and move on, hired him to lead this big new program that he's doing, this Rebuild Re- the Dream program. And so despite his views that I think uh, were exposed as really extreme and outside the mainstream, he, he finds himself pretty squarely within the main of our current kind of democratic left in this country which to me indicates that it's not so much that his views are radical or out of step, it's just that he's been less politic in terms of saying out loud uh, what many of them believe. Yeah, so it's uh, not just that he left, but that he got this
1: very soft landing after leaving Under a Cloud, and also that it's not just his views, but also his, I guess, I mean, for teaching fellowship at Princeton, his his relative lack of credentials. I think that's part of the issue as well, wouldn't you say
0: yeah, well, I mean he's got um I mean he's got a he's got a law degree from Yale. Uh so that is something, but you know, I don't he's sort of appointing himself as a world expert on energy policy is is kind of interesting from from that perspective. I mean he came up from social justice street organizing in Oakland and uh he was actually pushed forward by some excuse me, some of the major big money environmental foundations uh pushed him to the forefront because they saw him as kind of the new model of an environmental leader who could unite the interests of the environmentalists and the labor unions. And this is actually one of the interesting structural changes in American politics over the last 10 years or so. The um, labor unions and the environmentalists had historically been enemies for logical reasons. Uh, The the environmentalists wanted to shut down most industrial activity, and the labor unions needed that industrial activity for union jobs. And uh, what the left has managed to do, and there have been a number of different vehicles for organizing this, the Blue-Green Alliance and the Apollo Alliance, and Van Jones was on the Apollo Alliance's board. Uh, What they've managed to do is to align the interests of the unions and the the greens through the concept of green jobs and raiding the U.S. Treasury to fund these uh, extravagant green job schemes, which advance environmental objectives and that also carry requirements that union labor be used. And that has been... uh, that has been a key political breakthrough, I think, for the left on getting, you know, their various, uh, you know, constituencies on the same page and pushing in the same direction. Right, as
1: long as we're uh, talking about Kepp, let's finish up, and there's this guy, Mark Lloyd at FCC. T- tell me a little bit about him, and also you mentioned earlier this issue of net neutrality. Can you explain to our listeners what net neutrality is and what would be the implications of its pursuit?
0: Yeah, Mark Lloyd was a, uh, was a scholar at the Center for American Progress, and he co-authored a report that was jointly published by the Center for American Progress and another left-wing advocacy group that's extremely influential in this administration called Free Press. And uh, it was called The Structural Imbalance of Talk Radio, and it was a proposal to uh, basically to cripple conservative talk radio and to expand uh, liberal talk radio uh, through a scheme of regulation and taxation of commercial broadcasting to expand non-commercial broadcasting, as well as the use of localism and diversity requirements to sort of directly regulate content. And uh, he's been hired in this administration. He was hired by a woman named Susan Crawford, who was who served under Podesta on the Obama transition team. She was the transition lead on... FCC issues she later went into the administration on the National Economic Council and was the lead on these issues from the White House as well she resigned in disgrace after it became clear uh how extreme her views were although uh, she claimed her sabbatical was up and she was going back to the University of Michigan but it was originally approved as a 2-year sabbatical and she left after just 1 year but Mark Lloyd uh is was installed in the newly created position at the FCC of chief diversity officer where they've pursued a lot of the ideas from his book, and they've changed the licensing requirements for radio stations to now include a reporting on localism, the amount of local content that they have, as well as diversity of both on-air talent and the ownership group and so on. And I believe they're collecting this information so that they can use it uh, for, for mandates that will pretty directly affect content. So that's uh, something that definitely bears watching. But the, my principal concern with the FCC, which is, the chapter, three, uh, which is chapter 3 of the book, has been with this fight for net neutrality, and this is one of these ideas that sounds really wonderful sort of at the slogan level, and the the left always has wonderful names for everything. And this idea was, um, we ought to regulate the internet, so all the traffic, all the bits, all the zeros and ones are treated the same way. And the left has been saying for about 10 years that if government doesn't step in and do this, the big bad phone and cable companies will start blocking what websites we can go to, uh, interfering with with, uh, traffic, blocking different devices and applications, and so on. It's never happened, and in my view, it never will happen because competition creates a much better discipline on those types of abuses than regulation ever could. The phone company would lose all their customers to the cable company if they ever tried that. Uh, more significantly, in recent years, it became clear that regulation like that is an impossibility from an engineering standpoint because as we've had more and more streaming video and other high bandwidth intensive applications, there's been a lot of intelligence built into the networks. There are millions of lines of code in a router that allow it to know that a streaming video needs to get there right away, that a voice over internet protocol phone call like this one we're doing right now over Skype has got to get where it's going without interruption versus, say, an email that could wait 10 or 20 seconds and it really wouldn't make a difference. So there's been a lot of intelligence built into the network that's been necessary from an engineering standpoint. So the net neutrality proponents, they kind of revised their original idea and said, well, we'll allow traffic to be treated differently but only if the FCC deems that management to be reasonable, so they created this exception for reasonable network management practices. and uh, this current rule that the FCCs adopted and I, I mentioned that they did this despite the fact that the American people rejected it, that Congress rejected it, and the federal courts rejected it, they did it on a three-two-party line vote anyway. Uh, this rule basically says you have a mother may I regime for any network practice you might want to have uh you need to go to the f c c and ask them whether they deem it reasonable and you know, that sort of depend that that sort of creates an awful lot of authority uh, for the f c c to kind of uh play traffic cop and decide what they deem to be or not be reasonable. I think this current commission is unlikely to abuse it because they don 't want to make clear that critics like myself are were correct this could be very damaging. But it's easy to envision a future FCC deciding that they ought to be in the business of deciding you know, which network practices and which business arrangements should or shouldn't be allowed. And uh, for that reason, the presence of this rule will almost certainly decrease investment, capital investment. Uh, these networks cost billions of dollars to build. There was a study from the New York Law School recently that said that this regulation would destroy as many as 200,000 jobs by decreasing capital formation and investment in this sector. Uh, I think it's a terrible path to go down. And we've been pushing awfully hard for Congress to step in and overturn it. Uh, Not just because this rule is a bad one and it creates a a bad precedent in itself, but also from a process standpoint, if the FCC can create for itself jurisdiction, and in this case they took a section of the Communications Act uh, 706 that was specifically supposed to be a catch-all for further deregulatory measures in the 1996 Act, and they twisted it into an independent source of regulatory authority, if they can do that, they could create for themselves almost any power subject only to uh, us creating enough will in Congress to overturn it. And I think that is a very, very dangerous path to go down. And so we're going to keep pushing uh, for this to be overturned. I hope that Verizon will succeed in court. But if they don't, we're going to push hard for the Congress to overturn this you know, in the next Congress, having failed to do so in this one.
1: Well, we haven't really gone in order, but we have gone through most of the major areas that you talk about in the book in terms of the environment, the Internet, the um uh, health healthcare, but one other area you talk about is uh, ways that the Obama administration is trying to help unions and union organizing. Can you talk a little bit about the Employee Free Ch- Choice Act and the importance of secret ballots, also the uh, the NMB, the um, National Mediation Board?
0: Yeah, I mean this is this is extremely timely right now because there's a lot going on in this policy area. But you know the the major source of financial and logistical support for the Obama campaign came from the major unions in this country. SEIU alone spent more than sixty million dollars electing President Obama and sort of the the broad labor movement in 2008 for Obama and down-ballot candidates probably spent as much as a billion dollars and so this is the real muscle of kind of the democratic coalition in terms of finance and logistics and so forth and Obama of course fully intended to reward them for that and their their sort of dream wish list of all the labor law reforms that they wanted to see were in a bill Um, once again named more or less the opposite of what it is, called the Employee Free Choice Act. And this was a bill that in its first version would have actually ended secret ballot elections for union organizing. It would have kept them as an option, but the union would have had the option of deciding whether or not they wanted an election. And so they they wouldn't have opted for them. They would have just collected union cards where um, union organizers could have openly intimidated and coerced people into signing the cards without the protection of a secret ballot election to decide whether or not they actually wanted to join that union. And they had more than a majority of the House uh, signed on as co-sponsors last Congress. The previous Congress, they actually passed it in the House. Uh, Last Congress, they never voted on it in the House, so they would have had the numbers if they wanted to. But it collapsed in the Senate. It collapsed in the Senate. Uh, The the senator who pulled the plug was Blanche Lincoln of Arkansas, major non-union employer in her state is Walmart. And uh, she said... I'm not going to do this, and uh, it, the unions actually wasted ten million dollars on a primary challenge to her. Uh, she, she lost the general largely because she voted for Obamacare. If she had turned her nose up at the unions twice on their other top priority, Obamacare, I think she'd still be a U.S. senator. Uh, but the the point here is, it failed to pass Congress. Uh, Congress did not make any changes to labor law in the last Congress. Uh, they were unable to directly reward the unions, and Obama turned to probably the leading advocate of sort of rewriting the labor laws by by the back door without going through Congress. A man named Craig Becker who'd written a 50,000 word Minnesota Law Review article about how the labor laws could be completely transformed to tilt the uh, playing field in favor of unions without actually passing any legislation. He actually wrote that uh, he thought employers should be stripped of any legally cognizable interest in their employees' choice of representatives and uh, that he believed this could be done without going to Congress. Now, given the extremism of his views he was rejected by the United States Senate on a bipartisan vote and President Obama went ahead and recess appointed him he uh, put another SEIU lawyer Mark Pierce on the National Labor Relations Board as well and they've pursued a a pretty extreme agenda at that board of pushing the limits of of what's possible without uh, revisiting the labor law they uh, had a, a proposal called electronic remote voting They would have actually uh, effectively done away with secret ballot elections by allowing uh, voting to be done over the Internet and over the telephone where union organizers could show up at your house just like they could have with that union card under card check and had an iPad and said it's time to vote here, Uh, click here and vote for the union. Uh, That proposal seems to have died. But they've moved on to this idea of an ambush election, which is a, a very short timetable election. The union could spring on an employer with as little as seven days' notice, uh, preventing the employer from explaining to workers why they might not want to vote for the union. And interestingly, this was the last, this was the, uh, last version of the car check legislation as well. Uh, towards the end, before EFCA completely collapsed, they replaced the idea of getting rid of elections with the idea of having these quickie ambush elections. And uh, the NLRB is expected to vote that proposal, again, without legislation. They're expected to vote that proposal out on November 30th, uh, which will, the uh, the proposed rule November 30th final by the end of the year, where Craig Becker's recess appointment expires. They also did something really interesting on November 3rd, which is they, they issued an order November 3rd saying that if they lose their quorum, the Supreme Court has said they need three members to have a quorum on the National Labor Relations Board. They'll only have two when Becker's recess appointment expires. Uh, they issued an order saying if they lose their quorum, the general counsel, which is presently a man named Leif Solomon, uh, will have delegated to him the power to represent the board in all litigation matters and to certify union elections. And so they're attempting to sort of redelegate powers that, in my view, are already too broad and that Congress delegated to them to uh, Leif Solomon when they lose their quorum, and Leif Solomon, who's... Nomination as general counsel. He's the acting general counsel. His nomination has been pending since January, almost a full year. Harkin hasn't had a hearing or marked him up. hasn't done anything on him. Uh, he's the guy who's infamously suing Boeing for locating a facility in a right-to-work state, a thousand-worker facility in Charleston, South Carolina, and he's also suing four U.S. states: Arizona, South Dakota, South Carolina, and Utah for passing state constitutional amendments to protect secret ballot rights in union organizing elections. So we've got a guy here who is pursuing a very aggressive pro-union agenda, who's not had any action in the Senate because Democrats, uh, led by Tom Harkin, are blocking any action on him, and who's about to get a lot of additional authority. And so I would like to see the Senate vote on him, or at least the Health Committee vote on him.
1: Why are they blocking him? You said the Democrats are blocking him. Is it because they don't want his views to be aired? Because they think they'll be embarrassed? Or because they truly oppose his nomination?
0: I think they will I think they would be embarrassed. And I, I think they don't want to be in a position where they have to vote. They, I, I don't think they want to have to vote for him. Because they'd have to defend his Boeing lawsuit and his lawsuits against the states. And I, he recently had an email that was released from a FOIA request where he joked that he had screwed up the U.S. economy. So he was going to move to Europe and work for Airbus. Not a funny joke considering he's suing... Boeing have to say he would go work for their biggest competitor in Europe and so this guy's got a lot of problems associated with him so they don't want to vote for him because that would hurt a lot of their guys who are in cycle but they don't want to vote against him because they don't want to uh, you know they don't want to insult their labor bosses who are providing so much support for them and who are so critical from a logistics and financial standpoint for their re-elections and so they, they just block any consideration but I really don't think they should be allowed to get away with that. Now, I must say in your book, you
1: paint a pretty depressing picture of all the things that are going on, the expansions of the administrative state and the, the ways that they're being done in no way, circumventing uh, standard procedure and, um, and, and pre-existing legal authority. But you do have a proposed alternative, which I guess you call the, the RAINS Act. I guess you don't call it, I mean, you, didn't, you didn't invent it. But the, the RAINS Act is a way to make Congress affirmatively grant the authority to proceed with regulations. So every regulation would have to be approved of by Congress before going forward, uh, I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, but also uh, raise the uh, address the issue of if, let's say, there's an administration that you think is not only more responsible but interested in regulatory reform and, and pairing back regulations, wouldn't the RAINS Act tie their hands just as it would tie the Obama administration's hands in a way that you do like?
0: Well, the the RAINS Act is a significant reduction in presidential power. There's no question about that. And so, you know, if you look at it from kind of the perspective of any single administration, uh, you would would tend to be against it if you like the current administration. And so, you know, if you get a conservative Republican in who wants to correct a lot of these things by regulatory means, uh, having restrictions on that power, having the requirement that they go to Congress and get approval, would make it more difficult to do so. But I, I take a longer term view. And I think, you know, in, in the long term, advocates of limited government will do much better in a process that requires our elected officials to actually vote on regulations. And I believe that uh, for two reasons. First of all, I think we'll get much better legislation on the front end, I think we, we will no longer get open ended grants of authority to bureaucrats. Because uh, the incentive for Congress to do that is that they can dodge political responsibility uh, for how the specifics work out. I think if we make clear that it's all coming back to them anyway, we'll get much better, uh, more focused, more limited in scope, authorizing legislation on the front end. Uh, But second, where there are major contentious rules, uh, where there are rules that have a major impact on the economy, I think our side will do much better. If it's fought out in the realm of public opinion and in the the uh the realm of you know our elected officials in Congress, then if it's fought out among bureaucrats and uh the courts and so on, and you know i, I some people who are some critics of the Reigns Act from the right have said, well, you know Congress is so open to corruption and cronyism and lobbyists that uh, I don't know that putting all this in congress's lap is is an improvement, and uh, my view is that all of those pressures exist uh on the On the bureaucratic side, regulatory capture is a very real problem. Uh, I would just rather take my chances in the political realm, in the realm with our elected officials. I think that uh, we'll win a lot more of those fights than we lose in the long term and so uh, does it make it potentially more difficult if you have a conservative administration to undo some of these things? It does, but I think we've got to take a longer term view i also I don't like the idea of us having these wild pendulum swings where whoever the president is, everything switches over. I think we've got to have some longer-term policy stability for planning horizons for businesses, for people to have sort of a a sense of what the rules are going to be on sort of a, a longer time horizon. And so uh, even if you might lose something in terms of what's possible in the near term when you have a Republican administration, I think we'll have a much better and more stable policy environment overall if we have something like the RAINS Act, that forces significant uh, economic decisions to be made in Congress as opposed to in the agencies.
1: You know, Phil, our standard final question here on New Books and Public Policy is, what would you do if you were czar for a day based on what you learned from writing your book? And I think you've answered that in terms of the RAINS Act is, is your policy prescription. So why don't you, instead of answering that question directly, talk a little bit about the RAINS Act's legislative prospect. I mean, I know there is the uh, Congressional Review Act, which has been around since the, uh, the Gingers Congress, it's only been uh, implemented once uh, to get rid of the ergonomics regulation at the beginning of the Bush administration that the Clinton administration had put forward at the end. Uh, so what do you think about the prospects of the RAINS Act, and, and what do you think about the Congressional Review Act?
0: The Congressional Review Act uh, requires kind of a perfect storm for it to actually work, because you've only got 60 legislative days that you have the expedited procedure. You have uh, filibuster protection in the Senate for voting on overturning a rule, 60 ledge days. Uh, And the president has to sign it. And so I think it's very unlikely that a president would sign the overturn of a rule coming out of his own administration. The ergonomics rule worked because there happened to be an intervening presidential election during the 60 legislative days. And actually, that could prove very, very important because political pressure has caused Obama to delay a lot of the most costly regulations at EPA and elsewhere. And uh, if, in fact, they go final with those during the lame duck period, if Obama should lose, uh, we could have a replay of the ergonomics rules in terms of the new president coming in and being able to use that tool to overturn those regulations. But I think the the default is set wrong in the Congressional Review Act. Uh, it's very difficult to get majority in the House and Senate to even pay attention to an issue, let alone sign a discharge petition that, to get the votes. And then uh, getting that presidential signature is almost impossible unless you have a, an election in the middle. So it hasn't been a good tool to actually limit uh, you know excessive regulation the Rains act flips the default it says no economically significant rule can take effect unless congress has already voted house and senate to implement it and the president has signed it or have a veto override so in other words it uses the process described by the constitution for passing laws as the process for passing economically significant regulations and i think that that's really crucial Some have claimed that this is a legislative veto that would be barred under INS v. Chata. I think that that's incorrect, that it is essentially a a, um, undelegation of power that was inherently Congress's power to legislate, taken back from the agencies and saying you can now propose rather than directly implement rules. And it follows the exact process in the constitution. It's bicameral consideration, House and Senate, and it's presented to the president. And so I think it's a very elegant constitutional way to, um, put our elected officials back in the decision loop and uh, prevent unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats from being able to implement really significant, uh, really economically significant rules. And uh, I'm, very, I'm very bullish on the prospects for this. We're over 200 co-sponsors in the House. The House floor vote is expected next week. I believe it'll pass the House. Um, and we're going to push hard for it in the Senate. It's a bipartisan bill right now in the Senate. Rand Paul and Joe Manchin are the lead sponsors. It's got 30 co-sponsors in the Senate. Uh, do I think we can get it past Harry Reid and get 60 in the Senate? I'm not quite that optimistic. Although I sure would like to see a lot of these in-cycle Democrats explain why they ought to be returned to the Senate and continue to be legislators if they want to let all the real legislative power be eg- be exercised by bureaucrats. So I think there can be a lot of heat and pressure, and I hope that we'll have a highly visible Senate vote on this sometime next year. But I think this is the kind of idea that is such a strong idea. It's so common sense. I think it resonates with people. It's the kind of thing that we should continue to push. Uh, until we can get passed, even if it takes a few Congresses. And most of the Republican presidential candidates have committed to pushing for and signing this legislation. Uh, Mitt Romney has it in his economic plan. Herman Cain is committed to signing it. Ron Paul and Michelle Bachman are both co-sponsors. And so I think this is an idea that's got real currency right now. And uh, it's an idea that, that I think we can see through to enactment, uh, if not this Congress, then in one of the next couple of Congresses.
1: Well, there you have it. Bill Kirpin. Author of Democracy Denied. Thank you for joining us today on New Books and Public Policy.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to my interview with Bill Kirpin, the author of Democracy Denied. In the interview, Bill Kirpin went through a number of policy areas, including health care, internet regulation, energy and environment, and union rules, to discuss how the Obama administration is using administrative approaches to pursue its policy goals. Bill, as you can tell, is quite passionate about the subject and has a lot of thoughts, but he's also given us a lot to think about and a lot of meaty stats, facts, and stories to back up his assertion. So, the book is Democracy Denied. It's worth taking a look, giving it a read, seeing what you think. And, as always here on New Books on Public Policy, this is Tevi Troy. Until next time, saying, Sweep reading.